When I was a kid growing up in Jersey, uh, anybody who was a hoot or really funny or something, uh, we'd call him a riot. Ladies and gents, uh, this guy's a riot in more ways than one. Bob Dylan. The cat's in the well. The wolf is looking down. The cat's in the well. The wolf is looking down. He's got his big bushy tail dragging all over the ground. This is Pod Dylan, the show that celebrates the work of Bob Dylan, one song at a time. Proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I'm your host, the Freewheeling Rob Kelly. And joining me to talk about Cats in the Well, the final track from the 1990 album, Under the Red Sky, is big-time Bob fan and awesome writer, Ray Padgett. Hi, Ray. Hi. Thanks for having me. Thank you for being here. I'm really excited to talk to you. Uh, as I said in the uh, intro a second ago, awesome writer. Uh, <laughs> I should have thought of a more clever term than that. But you, uh, of course, anyone listening to this show, I'm sure you're familiar with Ray's work. He has done an amazing series of interviews with people in the Bob Dylan orbit and then other pieces on top of that. And all of it, incredibly fascinating stuff. And so I'm really excited to, to have you on the show. Finally. Uh, as I said, we're going to talk about Cats in the Well, which is not a song I expected you to select <laughs> when I asked you what song to do. But again, we'll get to all that in a moment. But I have to ask. Well, you don't, did- you don't like horses going bumpity bump. <laughs> I actually like this song. It just was not what I, it would not have been one that you, you were purposely like, Oh, how about this one? I'm like, Oh, that's okay. That's interesting. Uh, but, but of course we have to, how did this all get started for you? How'd you become a fan of Bob? So it's, it was a it was sort of piecemeal for me. I, in high school, um, in the early two thousands, I saw my first Dylan show. It was uh Chicago 2004 at the Aragon ballroom. And at that point I was not a big fan. Um, my dad had a couple records on vinyl. So I, you know, I kind of knew them uh, sort of. Um, and then I went to this show and you're expecting me now to say that like the show blew me away, but it sort of didn't <laughs> like I was the classic, you know, I recognized one song the entire night. It was like a Rolling Stone and I didn't even get it until halfway through. Right. <laughs> so like I was sort of perplexed by it, but I was also, I was also intrigued. You know, I sort of quote the cliche, you know, something's happening. I don't know. I didn't know what it was. But I could tell that, like, you know, I'd seen plenty of shows and typically the songs sounded like they did on the albums, whether it was a young band or, you know, some other, you know, 60s era person. Um, so, you know, I was, I was like, oh, this is interesting. I remember I went afterwards, I like I figured out the set list and I downloaded not the show. I didn't you know, I didn't know that was a thing one could do. But I went I, I went on Napster. This, which, you know, this is dating it. This is Napster. I went on Napster and I downloaded, you know, the studio version of every song, um, 15 or whatever it was. And I kind of, it, it was a playlist and I just listened to that over and over. And, you know, by the end of the year, I was going to my second show. And at that point, I knew pretty much all the songs. So uh, from there, it was it was down the rabbit hole. <laughs> so was, was it sort of a surprise to yourself? Because you said you had kind of a mixed reaction to the show and then you find yourself like, oh, wait a minute. So was it like you were kind of caught yourself going, boy, I had, I didn't think I enjoyed it at the time, but I'm thinking about it a lot or something. Yeah. It was obviously That's the back exact, of your mind. That, yeah, exactly right. Something with it kind of stuck with me, even though like, yeah, it didn't blow me away. I didn't know any of the songs and even the one, you know, it, there's again, like I looked at the thing I knew all along the Watchtower, but I didn't recognize it. I, I don't remember what the set list was, but there were probably two or three others he played that I, I should have known, but didn't. But yeah, it was it was kind of being intrigued enough to download, to, you know, make my own playlist of the songs he played and just sort of listen to that. I mean, the, the advantage of who who knows whether it would have happened today. Part of the thing is like you make a playlist like that in that era. Each song takes like 30 minutes to download. So pretty much any any MP3 you download at, in that era 
<laughs> you listen to like a million times because of the time investment, the commitment. And, and so God, I downloaded 15. That's like hours of my life. Um, so yeah, I'm going to listen to them quite a bit. <laughs> Kids nowadays have just no clue of what that no, was. Yeah. Like. I mean, just literally a... I might've been like, eh, forget this, you know, listen to that playlist once and move on. But yeah, you, you didn't have many MP3s. So. <laughs> I did listen it, to what you had. That happens with me with, with movies is that I'll watch something and I'll, I'll, I'm watching it in the moment and I'm kind of like, eh, this is all right. But then like a week later, I'm like, well, I'm still kind of thinking about it though, you know? And yeah, it, that uh-huh. tells me something as opposed to other pieces of entertainment that leave your brain, you know, the minute the credits are over, you're like, what did the, what just even happened? I don't even remember. Cause it just leaves no imprint. So obviously that show Bob was imprinting himself upon you. You just didn't know it. Uh, yeah, exactly. He was, he was one step ahead as <laughs> usual. So what led you to starting to write about it? I mean, that's a, that's a whole other a whole other uh, kettle of fish. So I, it had kind of, kind of be kind of the opposite, kind of that I drifted away. You know, I was, a, so this is 2004, you know, I'm a big, I'm a huge Dylan fan for the next, well, I mean, I'm a huge Dylan fan the whole time, but I'm really paying attention, you know, through college that takes me through nine, maybe a year or two after, but you know, I, I first of all, I don't think the performances were as good by the early 2010s. And, you know, I kind of drifted away. I was lucky enough to live in New York city. So he constantly played here. So I would see him every now and again. But I just kind of wasn't paying a lot of attention. I wasn't on any of the forums. I certainly, you know, didn't know about any of the podcasts, if there even were, <laughs> hmm. you know, that, 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 that might be pre-podcast, but you know, whatever was happening, I just wasn't plugged in. And, you know, I kind of in, what are we talking, 2019, uh, for first of all, I saw a couple shows in 2019 that were like really good, better than the, some of the ones I'd seen. But also just, I was like, you know, I, I kind of liked that. I liked doing it. I remember fondly the sort of being in Dylan world. Um, being on the forums, you know, the ones that existed at the time. And I had some free time. So I was like, you know, let me start this, this, I heard about Substack, you know, this new newsletter thing that was so uh, buzzy. And I was like, oh, let me start, you know, a, a newsletter that's just about live Bob Dylan, just as a way, as an excuse, really, to listen to live Bob Dylan, which I had not done in a number of years in any serious way. When you started reaching out to, because again, you've done some amazing interviews and like uh, the one I'm thinking of the recently was the Winston Watson piece which mm-hmm. features that story about him and his daughter and his daughter befriending Bob, which to me is like one of the all-time great Bob Dylan stories for yeah, anyone who okay. hasn't read it, read Ray's piece. It is read the whole interview, obviously, but that piece is um, absolutely amazing. And it's so charming. So when you are approaching these people, I mean, obviously, you know, I've, I've reached out to people for interviews and I've been turned down, you know, and I've gotten yeses and I've gotten no's and sometimes no responses at all for the people that have said, yes, are they, kind of guarded about stuff what they'll talk about when in relation to him or is it generally once they've said yes to you it's kind of like i just ask me what you want to ask me i mean obviously they can answer they can choose to answer not answer certain things but do you you find are they at the people because everyone i guess that you're talking to at this point is kind of out of his orbit by now they're no longer working with him so it's i feel like the veil of secrecy has been lifted a little bit, but are, are all these people still kind of a little guarded about what it's like to deal with him? I'm actually, I've been amazed at how unguarded people are. I mean, when I first started and I didn't even really start doing interviews until practically, you know, a year into this thing, that wasn't really the plan. And part of that was, I just assumed because so, because these people in many cases have basically never talked about him beyond, you know, a sort of token non-answer once or twice i assumed there were literally ndas i mean i assumed they had signed things that said they couldn't talk about him because 
you know, Winston is actually ha- is someone who has talked about him. He did a DVD a few years ago, but like a lot of these people have literally never given an interview about Bob Dylan. And so I sort of have been amazed at how open people are with stories, with talking about the musicianship. And, you know, I can only speculate as to why. I mean, I try to make clear when I reach out to people that like, first and foremost, it's about the music. Right. Like, I'm not looking for like gossip. I'm not right. Things, and it's right. not gonna be like dumb, like, so so what's bob really like you know right, it's, it's right. which i'm sure they've gotten a million times i'm sure it's fairly annoying you know it's it'll be i a know my stuff but also it's not just like fanning out it's it's trying to sort of get into you know their lives what the life with him was like what making music with him was like and yeah if we get a few uh a few fun behind the scenes anecdotes uh that that's like the like the one with winston's daughter you know that that's a bonus but it's you know it's not it's not exactly the goal is not like to betray privacy or get the Dylan camp pissed at them. And as far as I know, that hasn't happened. So, right. so yeah, I'm, I've been amazed at how, 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 how willing people have been once. I mean, once I get them to say yes, to the interview, which as as you know, yourself is no small task. I mean, Winston took me a year and a half. Wow. To get him yeah. to do it. And that's, that's not that unusual. I just interviewed last week, Freddie Coella, and that was the better part of two years. Wow. Um, so, <laughs> you know, so that, that, but yeah, by the time I've sort of convinced them, uh, I think they're they're willing to sort of open themselves up a little bit. Right. I've said on, on previous shows, the ultimate biography that I would want to read about the ultimate book about Bob I want to read would be Tony Garnier's book. I knew. Yes, I knew you were going to say that. That's the ultimate I'm book. And to- totally with you. Yeah. And I don't want to read dirt. I don't care about dirt. I don't care about what women Bob is sleeping with on the on the tours. I don't care what he eat. I don't get that. I'm not interested in that. But just. What is it like to be this guy's sideman for 35 years? What's that life like? Because you imagine he's getting, at the very least, he's overhearing phone calls from like movie stars and presidents and you know, all these people that it's like, oh, yeah, oh, the Nobel Committee called, you know, <laughs> that kind of stuff. Then all on top of it, Garnier just seems like he's having such a good time that I would just think that would be just the most amazing book uh, uh, possible. And I guess one of the other advantages to doing the way you're doing, you're doing it online is that you have all the room in the world. You're not, you're not limited to column inches in the old days of like a magazine or something. You can be, you can give somebody as much space as they need to tell whatever story they want to tell. Yeah. I think that's, that's sort of part of my pitch too, is like telling your own words, you know, all of mine are written in the Q and a format. It's not like me writing and cherry picking a quote here and there, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. I've done that and plenty of other things, but these are really like, I, you know, when I edit them, I try to take myself out as much as possible and just have it be the person, you know, kind of telling their story in their own words. And yeah, you know, some, some of these people, especially the ones who, you know, have been around back in the magazine area you're referring to might be used to, you know, you talk to someone for 45 minutes, they pick like the two juiciest sentences yeah. and throw the rest away. And, you know, like I say, that's actually, you know, that's part of journalism in some cases. It's not, not bad necessarily, but I think people do like the opportunity to know that they're going to you know, be able to talk sort of at length and have it put out there. Right. They get the full context and said that story yeah. again that Winston told about his daughter. It goes on a while. And I, I remember reading it and I'm going, where is this going? Where? What is, is it like? I mean, I know it's not going to be bad because I don't think he'd be telling it. And then it hit that, it hit the end, and I was like, "Oh, that's fantastic! <laughs> this is such an amazing piece." Um, if you don't mind me asking about your process, do you talk? Do you tend to these talk to these people over the phone, like directly, or is it email? Is it are you sometimes, or is that a mix of both? Are you like literally dealing with the people one on one? Yeah, it, yes, it's always over, and it's always over the phone. 
Um, I email interviews. It's impossible to ask follow-ups. Yeah. Um, you don't know necessarily if someone's a good writer. And like I say, you know, this is maybe more processy than people are interested in, but like, again, I'm taking myself out. So like that Winston story, there was probably a lot more of me gently nudging him, asking mm. for clarification, trying to get certain details. You know, there was probably a lot more back and forth and I just took my part out of it. So it's him. I mean, him, I mean he's a good storyteller. I don't want to make it seem like yeah. he couldn't tell it himself, but you know, I'm, I'm in there in the conversations a lot more and you can really only do that on the phone if you're able to respond to these people in real time. Right. In the moment. And you can have a, Oh, wait a minute. Let me ask you about this. While we move on to this other thing uh, that, yeah, that said, you can only have that in, in the moment unless you were already scheduled follow-ups and then that's its whole other process. Yeah. Uh, so <laughs> yeah, I get it. It's, it's absolutely fascinating stuff. And I have to say when reading your, your, your sub stack, like reading the pieces, you know, gr- having grown up on this grown up, but I mean, having, been a fan of his now for 30 years you go into the minutiae of stuff in a way that i'm like oh i guess i'm not the only person that, <laughs> that thinks this way and that's that's very comforting <laughs> in its own way that's like <laughs> i mean we all know that the diehard bob heads are like that but at the same time until you see it it's you always feel like am i the only one that really bothers thinking this kind of way and then you know, you, some of the stuff you've talked about, and in relation to this song, to Cats in the Well, I'm like, oh yeah, okay. There are other people who whose brain thinks like this when it comes to Bob. And again, that's that I find that very reassuring. It's always like I'm not the only yeah, one. Yeah, I mean, I'm you know, I'm I'm just asking quite the questions I'm curious about personally, right? And so sometimes they're like you know things that a lot of people are going to care about, and sometimes it's like you know. I've always loved the Larry Campbell's guitar part in Girl from the North Country, mm. which he played at that first show I saw, though I didn't recognize it at the time. But like I learned it, you know, on guitar myself later and it took me a million years. And it's like I asked him about that guitar part, you know, and that's the sort of <laughs> right. thing I'm going to do. It's like, you know, that's even that's really tangential to Bob. It's not going to be some great backstage story, but, you know, I'm curious about it. And so I think, you know, even even, even the sort of weird tangential stuff, it, it's a uh, it's been I'm, and I'm sure you found this with the podcast too, that like this stuff is niche, but it's a bigger niche than you might expect. Yes. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Absolutely. It's again, it's, it's a, uh, it's nice to, to have that uh, feeling of similarity across the world of people all over the place. I like, oh, yeah, they, they feel the same way about this weird little, as you said, like that guitar part, you know, mm-hmm. or that weird little inflection or whatever it is. So, uh, so related to that cats in the well, again, it's the final song from under the red sky, which is an album that generally is underserved. I would say by Dylan fandom. Uh, we've only done a couple of songs from it, uh, in the, in the relatively recent past, but I really like this record. It's, it was certainly divisive upon release because coming out as it did off after, uh, Oh mercy, people were like, what the hell is all this nursery rhyme stuff? Like, what is he doing? And I would say this song, probably the grimmest ending to any album that he's put out to this point. I mean, I think mm-hmm. about ain't talking. That's a pretty grim song. Roll on John. It's kind of a uh, restless farewell. They all have their own desolation row, certainly, but it, this one is just to me, it's like, well, yeah, it's the, uh, the apocalypse, the apocalypse is happening. And uh, to end with the, uh, you know, let, may the Lord have mercy on, on us all. Bam. I'm out. Like, <laughs> Wow. Well, that part of why it's so grim is that it kind of sneaks up on you, right? Like yeah. you think of Desolation Row. I mean, God, there's desolation in the name. You're expecting right. grimness. 
this is about cats and wells and big bushy tails and horses going bumpity bump, you know, and like things are sneaking in, but it's kind of, and musically too, it's kind of a light, you know, bluesy song. And then, yeah. And then (laughs) all of a sudden you're like, wait, what? Yeah. Like, okay. (laughs) Do you have any idea who is playing that crazy lead guitar on the song? I, I've, I know the credits for the album, but they're not broken down by song. So I've never. So learned. I found one that on Discogs that was broken down by song. Okay. I was about that too. Um, Discogs tends to be fairly reliable, but I don't. <laughs> I, this isn't in, inside information. This is just what it says. So and and it's sort of hilarious. There's three guitarists on the song, right? Uh, David Lindley does the slide guitar, which is fairly prominent. Right. Um, I would call that maybe the most prominent, but it, but lead guitar is not, which is is listed separately. It's Jimmy Vaughn. Mm, okay and then the third guitar is just listed as guitar which makes me think it's just doing the bump but you know the riff that goes a million times over and over again mm-hmm. and that's stevie ray vaughn oh which wow i gotta okay. laugh at i gotta laugh at jimmy vaughn getting lead guitar <laughs> and stevie ray vaughn basically getting like backup guitar <laughs> <laughs> it's an unusual <laughs> record in that it's got all these sort of big time guest stars that's not typical for I know, it, seems, it really seems record. like a like a power move or something where he's like getting Elton John and he's like, and you're going to do basically nothing and barely be audible slash. All right. <laughs> you're not going to do much <laughs> person. Eh, you can do a little bit, but uh, don't push it. <laughs> yeah. I, I remember reading about that him and apparently slash didn't super get along. Uh, in I the mean, of course but... they didn't get along. What was he? Was he thinking they would? <laughs> he's coming in with that big top hat on you know popular, like, yeah, what's going on here you ask for no. slash you're gonna get slash i mean what do you want <laughs> and slash in 1990 i mean at the, <laughs> the height of his fame and probably the rock rocket rock, rock star ego kind of thing is the guns no, bob every other record he's ever done is with like jim brooks you know studio guys like nashville cats <laughs> yeah no you got slash it's gonna be a very different vibe <laughs> So, okay, well, why did you, why this one? Why did you want to talk about this song? Of all songs to talk about, why this one? So, as I said, my whole thing is live, Dylan, right? And I'm especially interested in, like, weird, esoteric aspects of Bob Dylan Live, of which there are absolutely no shortage. But one I wrote about for a newsletter uh, maybe a year or so ago was kind of, I think the title was Oft Played Oddities, which was, like, songs that he played to death that you wouldn't expect <laughs> because, you know, if you look at like Setlist FM, I, which I use a ton is a great resource and it, you know, it'll show you the most played songs. And honestly, if you look at the like 10 or 15 most played songs, you're not going to see any surprises. Right. You think of Bob as doing a bunch of rare songs, but like he does all on the watchtower lot. He does highway 61. Like, like, you know, it's, it's, it's not that surprising. So I was, I was doing this newsletter. Where I was like, what are the weird songs that he's played a lot? Not some deep cut. He like dug out and played three or four times and then put away. But like some song that like is not a greatest hits by any definition <laughs> is no one's favorite Dylan song. I mean, I guarantee no Dylan fan is putting Cats in the Well in the top 10, even if you kind of like it. It's just not going to happen. <laughs> but Cats in the Well is a song he has played hundreds of times and not just like when the record came out. He played it more 15 years after the record came mm-hmm. out. He's mm-hmm. playing Cats in the Well every night for a while. I actually that first show I saw at the Aragon Ballroom. Later, I'm downloading the set list, right? Here's the encore. Like a Rolling Stone, All on the Watchtower, 
cats in the well and me not me not knowing anything i assume those are all hits of equal level those are just you know it's the encore people you play the hits in the encore so these are just three of his most widely beloved songs watchtower rolling stone cats in the well it took me you know it wasn't until months later that i discovered that one of those uh one of those stuck out a little bit but he was playing that for the encore every single night and so that uh it's not it's not my favorite song. I'm not even here to really defend it. I like it fine. It's okay. But I'm just so fascinated by a song like this that for whatever strange reason Bob decides is like an absolute gem in his catalog that he's going to play a ton and pretty much no one else agrees. When you asked to do this, I mean I do. I like this song. Uh it's it's really again despite the, the sort of you know, incredibly grim subject matter, it's fun to listen to. It's got again that slide guitar mm-hmm. is absolutely marvelous and just again it's got some of the typical sort of dylan characters back alley sally and stuff like that which by the way i every time he mentions sally in a song i always think he's talking about sally kirkland that actress that <laughs> yeah. uh that, that he is that well that never fails every time she's interviewed fails to talk about that she's you know palled around with bob and she's mm-hmm. actually in the um the video for unbelievable from this record as well she's in that video so i mean i think this is every time i hear sally it's, I always think, oh, he's talking about Sally Kirkland, even though I'm sure it's probably just the rhyme. Back Alley Sally just has a nice sing-songy thing to it. But when you mentioned this, I was sure before I looked into it that this was one of those songs that never has been played. There's never been played live because mm-hmm. a lot of the Under the Red Sky songs have not been played live. That's yeah, that's that's what you might expect Cats in the Well to be either never played or like you know once or twice or maybe some a few times around the album and then you know you put it away and that's about it. Right, or ten thousand men. Certainly 10,000 Men is probably like another one. Like that's just an album track kind of never to be heard again. But yeah, 299 mm-hmm. times yeah. this has been played. Uh, by the way, we also know that Bob is not counting these things. You always think he doesn't want us to do a 300th. doesn't want to do a 300 <laughs> times. He's got 299. But yeah, he's been playing this as recently as of 2010, uh, mm-hmm. which, you know, again, for most people, that's a lifetime ago. But for Bob, it's just sort of a blip. But yeah, I mean, he didn't just pull it out during the, uh, actually, it's funny. He started playing it in 1992, a full two years after the record had already come out. Uh, he, he didn't play it at all. And then he decides to pull out in 1992 and keeps playing it throughout the 90s and into the 2000s. And there are a bunch of versions of it on YouTube that you can listen to. And I went and checked out a bunch of them. Uh, none of them have that kind of crazy slide guitar that the uh, the album version has, but I think they all work on their own. They lyrically, they're pretty much all the same from what I could make out. Uh, generally, he's kind of muttering through some of the performances. A little hard to make some of it out. What did you think of this? I mean, how do you think this works live? I mean, do you think you think it's you know like when you heard it, you're like, hey, that's fun to listen to. Yeah, I mean that that sort of puts it up perfectly. Like it's almost hard to even talk about because like it's fine, it's good. <laughs> you know <laughs> what, what are you going to say about it? It's not like it's not like this is like a secret, you know, tangled up in blue that he's reinventing it every few years. And mm-hmm. no, it's like, you know, a, an upbeat blues song. And so like, you know, so because I'm a, I'm a weirdo, I've like spent way too much time thinking about why you would play a song like this so often. And I basically haven't come up with a satisfactory answer. Part of it has to be that it's fairly easy to play. It's a 12 bar blues. It's upbeat. But that's not even that's not even enough because every every album he he adds three more twelve bar blues right. songs. <laughs> shake, shake, mama, yeah, yeah. Right in twenty ten, he doesn't need to be playing cats in the well if he wants a twelve bar blues song. He's just he's just released ten in the past decade. So <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, yeah. So it's 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 like I say, I love these I love these sort of unsolvable mysteries. Um, 
I listened to this afternoon. I kind of put it on, you know, just put on my iTunes what I had. And before I noted, before I realized that I'd, I'd managed to listen to, I think, 21 versions of Cats in the Well in a row. Wow. Which if I sound like I've maybe lost my mind, uh, <laughs> that's probably part of it. I don't I don't know if mentally you recover from hearing about that many horses going bumpity bump in a <laughs> row, but um, they're all good. And there's, you know, as with anything, Dylan, they change a little bit. You can pick up differences, but they don't, it doesn't change that much. You know, right. again, no insane, amazing. Now it's acoustic sort of reinventions. <laughs> and I'm just, I just find that so interesting. Oh, he's played on keyboards now, you know, or whatever. It's like, okay. Yeah, I think. Um, I mean, he did play it on keyboards when right. he played everything on keyboards, but it didn't change it much. Right. I'm saying he did that. Like, he didn't like reorient the song nope. to turn it into like, well, now it's a keyboard heavy song. No, it's just basically the, the, the band is raving up. Uh, yeah. I was, I was going to say Garnier obviously looks like he's having a good time, but he always does. He always looks like that. So that's not even really necessarily mm-hmm. uh, distinctive. Uh, but so the song, I, I did the, the opening lyrics. The song goes on. It says, the cat's in the well. The gentle lady is asleep. Uh, the cat's in the well. Gentle lady is asleep. Shane hearing a thing. The silence is a stick in her deep. Uh, the cat's in the well and the grief is showing its face. The world's been slaughtered and it's such a bloody disgrace. And, you know, he's, he's really just putting it right on the, right on the nose there. I mean, it's just like it's mm-hmm. not choosing not to be subtle in that particular thing. I did. Think about the um the line of the I just quoted the Shane hearing a thing, the silence is a stick in her deep. I noticed that Bob has a lot of sleeping women in songs. That seems to be a thing of or women off to the side and kind of out of the 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 the, the game as it were, and she's kind of off to the side, and then there's all this hugger mugger going on, sort of in the in the town square almost. That seems to be a motif that he goes to a lot. There's a lot of gentility on under the red sky i think as a record and then there is again like on the flip side like this incredible grimness i even feel like something like under the red sky the song which we did an episode on not that long ago has a really dark cast to it even though it has this wonderful childlike melody to it, especially thanks to george harrison's guitar and i just always wonder boy was he in what kind of mood was he in in 1990 because so much of this just seems awfully grim I know it's like it, it's like it's like he was really trying with most of these songs to like write sort of light nursery rhyme like songs, but like some sort of like darkness or apocalypse kept like slipping in around the corners, mm-hmm. you know, because like not every song is nursery rhyme ish, but like so many of them, you know, sort of are. And in many cases, um, you know, I was looking up before we got on, I was talking, looking up um, Michael Gray's old encyclopedia and I didn't realize that like all over this album. He's kind of like he would do with Tim Rod or something later. Like a ton of these lines are literally borrowed from nursery rhymes. He's just mm-hmm. like grabbing lines from nursery rhymes left and right. But as you say, there's all this sort of this undercurrent and Cats in the Well is one of them, but it's, you know, it's certainly not the only one. Uh, he says the Cats in the Well, the horses going bumpity bump, back alley Sally. And there's back alley Sally doing the American jump. Have you ever figured out for yourself in, in your own mind, like what, what the American jump is? I've always tried to, in, again, for myself, try to come up with something that I can pin to and say, oh, I, that's what that means to me. But I'm still the American jump is just like it sounds bad, but I don't know. <laughs> I don't know exactly what it is even he's saying. Yeah, I, I have no idea what the American jump is. I think one of the theories in uh, that Michael Gray thing I mentioned was like, like, you know, jumping being like a, a child's game, basically, whether mm. jumping rope or, or something else. And I think he found a actual American jump game that exists. That I've never heard of, but mm. uh, 
Okay. Yeah. So, yeah. So like I, I say, he's pulling from all these different, all these different places. Yeah. Like I said, it sounds ominous, but I can't, I can't put my finger on it. So, and then he says, pop cats in the balls. Pop is reading the news. His air, his hair's falling out and all of his daughters need shoes. The cat's in the well and the barn is full of bull. And then the cat's in the well and the barn is full of bull. The night is so young and the table is oh so full. Now, those two verses together seem to be in conflict with one another because when I did the line about his hair is falling out, all of his daughters need shoes. Okay, obviously, this Papa guy is not doing terribly well. He's either incredibly poor, he's, you know, he's he's undergoing incredible deprivation and that his his hair is falling out. None of his daughters have shoes, but then the night is so long and the table is oh so full. Well, it's a full table. That seems to be, you know, like full of food. What else would a table be full of food? I guess. I mean, I would, you know, so I always like, well, wait, are we now in the same, like in a good, with a lot of Dylan songs, have we now shifted over to somebody else? And he just hasn't told us because it doesn't feel like someone who can't put shoes on his children has a table full of food. So now we're in a whole other thing, but the song's going by so fast. Again, it's hard to reconcile. Like, wait, what exactly is going on at any given point here? Well, and and I'm sort of talking on my ass here because I'm just reading the lyrics and making this up <laughs> in response to your question. But so here, so here is here's a theory I have not thought much about. But is is there an in, an inequality aspect to it? Because in the next verse, he's talking about a servant, right? Mm-hmm. So the if there's a servant, the there's someone who there's. There's a master. There's someone who has the sermon, presumably a rich person. So, are, you know, are we talking about one guy whose hair's falling out and his daughters need shoes, and someone else who's got a full table and has servants and has drinks that are ready? That makes sense. You know, yeah. <laughs> like I said, Bob. Bob is never too terribly concerned with orienting the listener at any given point. Even even within verses, he can change it up. And you're like, wait, we're talking about different people now. Uh, and said, this is obviously not a story song. It's a sort of an impressionistic sort of thing of what is going on of that. Again, it, you feel like there is dogs. Of, I mean, he's mentioning the drinks are ready and the dogs are going to war. It's a team of people, a group of people, a generation of people preparing for war, preparing for, again, maybe Armageddon, while you've got all these other people who are either not ready because their children are suffering. Or as you talk about the American jump, it's people playing back alley, Sally is maybe an adult and she's playing a children's game. So there's lots of people who are not paying attention to what is going on while there's this other group of people who are preparing for something kind of grim, you know, like, okay, that, that sort of makes sense to me. But then the, the melody is so poppy and fun and upbeat. And again, that slide guitar is so kind of just, you know, almost like circus, like that. It seems to me a little at odds with the lyric content, other than it's just, He's trying to just make it a little sound a little more palatable for what is, an, again, an, a kind of a very grim tune. Well, I mean, it's funny you say that. So like I mentioned when we were messaging earlier, like I'm generally not a big lyrics guy, which mm-hmm. I know is funny for a Dylan obsessive, but <laughs> I don't pay that much attention to lyrics. So I'd never, again, pay, you know, I knew the music very well and I knew I have live versions, but I'd never paid attention to the lyrics and sort of because of the lines I know, the cats in the well, you know, the, I keep mentioning it because it's hilarious. The horse going bumpy bump. You know, I, I didn't realize until looking it up literally today to look up the words to the song I've heard a million times that there were, were all these like darker things kind of slipped in around all the, you know, I just heard a bunch of animals. And again, because the music, the music fits, the music, music fits, I think, with the tale of horses and cats and wolves and just, you know, fairly light. And then uh, all of a sudden there's these sort of, 
slightly incongruous lyrics that don't really fit with this kind of barnyard menagerie. Uh, He ends the song with, again, the cats in the well, the leaves are starting to fall. Good night, my love. May the Lord have mercy on us all. And then the, the, this whole whole song comes at this sort of skidding stop and everybody's boom, boom, boom. And that just boom, we're out at that point. And I've mentioned this. I think we talked about this on the under the red sky episode, you know, not too long after this, of course, Bob goes and he does good as I've been to you, which features froggy Winter Corton. And right around this time, he did the, this old man mm-hmm. cover for that uh, children, the Disney's uh, benefit record. And with the Wilburys, he did, they did a cover of nobody's child on the Romanian benefit record as well. And I feel like with this record, so many of the songs having that kind of nursery rhyme sort of feel to it. Again, they're dark nursery or the Grimm's fairy tale sort of thing. I feel like Bob was maybe within the orbit of releasing like a children's record almost. I feel like yeah. he was headed in that direction and it didn't quite happen, but I feel like it was almost there because he seems like he was in that headspace with these songs and then with the covers that he was stripping everything down to its barest minimal essential again like wiggle wiggle is not a nursery rhyme but it might as well be because it is so basic yeah it's like a like a dance song for kids i got a i got a two-year-old i mean she'll be able to do the steps and wiggle wiggle minus vomiting fire i suppose uh (laughs) fairly soon yeah i mean i in some ways i think i i I think under red sky is okay i think it's generally you know fairly (laughs) fairly uh rated by fans but like i would i would almost like it better if it just went full like children's album Mm. and like take off born in time and God knows and do something else with them. Like those are the two best songs on the record. I'm not saying like dump them entirely, but you know, they're born in time, like put it on no mercy Um, and just like go all in on Mm -hmm. kind of this sort of nursery rhyme children's record. Cause as you say, it kind of seems like he wants to with most of the songs, a couple of them don't fit, but like, you know, you got two by two and that sounds like a kid's song. And, you know, like a, like a children's album where there's like darker undertones for the parents. You know what I mean? <laughs> kind of like Cats in the Well. Like the kids can dig it. Uh, it's all fun. And like, yeah, if you're a parent, like you can listen to the, the darker lines. And if you're a kid, you can just slide right over them. I think I think it, it would have been a cool record, but it doesn't doesn't quite get there. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> TV talking song is another song, another one on this, which we haven't done on the show. I really like that song. And there's an alternate version that's even darker. But I feel like that song is a little bit of a that end side one and then this end side two. I feel like there's some mirroring going on because that song is a bunch of kind of relatively, you know, kind of benign, if not great stuff. And then it ends with violence. It ends with some horrible violence, especially, again, the alternate take. And then this you really are getting sense like the world is ending. This is like the rapture is about to happen. And the way that, as I said before, the way that this thing comes to such an abrupt stop, everybody just boom, 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 boom. And it just boom, album's over. We're done. All right, everybody. That was under the red sky. Again, it just has, it's when I was listening to it again for, for the purposes of this episode, it's such an exhilarating performance. And again, the live ones are, are that way too. And then again, it is just so grim. And you mentioned that he was doing it in the encore. Was it the, was it often the last song of the encore? 
I wish I was, I was, when I was listening to these, I was kind of looking it up. I don't think so. And it okay. would be so good. Cause as you say, it's a good way to end a song. It's a great way to end an album. And it would be like such a badass way to end a show. <laughs> good night, my love with Lord love us, have mercy on us all. You can just imagine like music ends cut to black, like done. It'd be so good, but now go buy some I, t-shirts, I, everybody. Yeah. Right. I think it was the first song of the encore and then he got okay. to the, got to the hits. I mean, yeah, it wouldn't be a crowd pleasing way to end, but I think it'd be a, it'd be a cool way to end and probably <laughs> even more, even more effective. I always, I always figure that again, trying to guess why he does things is impossible. And it's a complete waste of time, but the watchtower and rolling stone, right? I figured those are on some level, as much as he's kind of anti this, those have to be on some level, the, the sops to the audience. To the, to the people that are there to see him maybe one time because he's Bob Dylan and they're not the diehard fans. And then the cats in the well is for him. Obviously he, he must enjoy playing it. He wouldn't play 299 times if he wasn't enjoying it. And he must feel that he's putting something across by doing it. But I almost wonder is that, is that kind of like, all right, here I'm going to do the encore. This is for the diehards. This is for the people who I see all the through the faces I see all the time. And then I'm going to do Watchtower because most of you uh, are are probably going to be here just one time. So they're going to give you something you're going to know. Now, obviously, he's not bothering with that much on the current tour because he's doing so much of Rough and Ready Ways. But an encore that is feature, features such an obscure song as this and then two of his biggest hits, it feels like it's like, all right, a little something for everybody before we go out. But even that, like, I think there's maybe some truth in that, but like, the diehards don't want Cats in the Well. The diehards would pick 50 songs before they'd pick Cats in the Well. If this is something for the diehards, you're giving them Cats in the Well. I mean, come on. The diehards are going to be like, are you kidding? And every night. This wasn't like just a one-off that I saw. Yeah, Again, that's true. Yeah. These three songs he was doing every single night. I mean, Cats in the Well every night. What diehard is going to pick that? <laughs> but no, it's definitely not for the casual fans because no one knows it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't think, has he done anything? I don't think he's done anything off Under the Red Sky, the record, in a really long time. Uh, I can't think of anything. He certainly still does stuff on Time Out of Mind, but I don't, and I don't and, think so. Yeah, but Under the Red I don't Sky. Think any of them, I mean, you know, since he started doing this sort of static sets in the like mid 2010s, I don't think any of these songs have found a place in, uh, any of the sets maybe a one-off occasionally but i don't think any of them have been you know and you could see god knows that's a song that he played a fair amount and that's a song you know i think fans really like i love that song I so love yeah you could, you could see that fitting into you know any of the sort of sets of the last few years but i don't i don't think it has no okay <laughs> so yeah he said he obviously he, he was enjoying doing it for a while and then to put it put it away and then and again, it's been 12 years since the last time he played it. And I have not I mean, imagine imagine him putting cats in the well in like the rough and rowdy ways set, though. Like, like you're going to go like mother of muses straight into cats in the well. <laughs> <laughs> Instead of crossing the Rubicon, we're going to do something from under the red sky, everybody. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's uh, I have I did not discover any covers of this at all and on i looked on youtube but i did not see any at least uh there are there are covers of songs that i never would have expected uh but this one i think most of the stuff from under the red sky i feel like i've it's not something that has had a whole great impact outside of the fact that just another it's not just another but it's a bob dylan record that i feel like hasn't reverberated too much into the culture beyond 
it's its own just it's it, itself as an artifact. Yeah, I mean, I think that's definitely true. Um, Born in Time, um, the War on Drugs, we're doing that on their last tour. So that's oh, were they really? Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, it's oh, great. You can find videos online. It's amazing. Oh, that's um, terrific. That, that's one that has a fairly high profile cover. But beyond that, um, there's actually this. Let me look up the name. There's this amazing like a uh, kind of New Orleans blues jazz band called um, Saturday Night Fish Fry. And they have this album called Dirt Road Blues that it's not all Dylan covers, but it's a lot of Dylan covers. And um, two of the songs they cover are 10,000 Men and Two by Two. And both, <laughs> both songs that I like super have no opinion on really at all. They're whatever. But they sound great in that kind of like Dixieland uh, rave up sounds like you know a sweaty New Orleans club at two a.m. Hmm. So Saturday Night Fish Fry people sh- people should check that out. I like their versions way better than Bob's. That is that is a uh, that's a big swing just to try and cover ten thousand men because uh, we were I think we were talking about it on Twitter a little while ago. That is one Dylan song that I have I am completely at sea on completely <laughs> like no not even the remotest clue of what that's about. Uh, it's it's pretty I like it. But I'm just, I'm like, okay, not from, from word one to the last word. I'm like, I don't know what the hell. But maybe that's, maybe that's why it could work in like that sort of party band style is that it, you're not thinking about the words. Yeah. You know, in that context, it's just, it's just fun music. Yeah. Absolutely. said. And this is, this is a, it's a, it's a, it's a raucous song. It's an upbeat song with the melody. And then again, you read the words and you're like, okay. And Bob was just kind of like, all right, that's where, where he was in, in 1990, probably not in the, the best of moods in the world and uh, things, I guess, presumably he decided to go back and, and do the folk records at that point, And we all know what happened after that, but uh, I like this song and I am really delighted that you wanted to talk about it because I like doing some of the more obscure stuff. And this definitely counts as that. So uh, <laughs> thank you for coming on Ray. Thank you for, for wanting to talk about, you know, something as uh, off the beaten track as cats in the well. Off the beaten track is uh, kind of my lane, and I appreciate you having me on. Absolutely. Like I said, I've really been enjoying your writing, and I look forward to what else uh, you have uh, you have uh, coming up. Um, before uh, we wrap up, I do have to ask you the standard sort of exit question, which is, um, what? Al- well, first of all, I've been asking for people for the longest time, what album of Bob's, if you could sit in on the sessions for, what would it be? But in the last episode, or two episodes ago, uh, one of my guests named something that wasn't an album and i thought well, i'm going to expand it so i'm going to i'm going to open it up to say any recording session bob dylan's been part of doesn't have to be a bob dylan album which one would you love to have been uh, on the fly on the wall for Ooh, so i would say i mean i'll give you the easy answer given what we're talking about would be under the red sky and that is partly just because like the insane number of famous musicians, <laughs> many of whom don't appear to be doing much would be very interesting to see <laughs> bruce hornsby um, has a lot of free time he's just sitting there but I, I, I mean, I'd also really have been interested to sit in on Murder Most Foul because I've interviewed now two of the three uh, piano players on that song, mm-hmm. uh, Ben Montanch and Alan Pasqua. Uh, I've not sadly interviewed Fiona Apple. But it was, you know, again, with you think of Dylan as sort of being seat of the pants, improvisational, just kind of winging it. And, you know, I mean, I suppose it's not maybe a huge surprise that a song like that, he wasn't just winging it the whole time. But like <laughs> hearing them talk about you know, the layers of the tracks and multiple sessions and overdubs. And there's, there's apparently a, uh, a demo, a murder must foul demo wow. that somewhere in the world, you know, oh, cause, boy. That, cause that's what they played Benmont. They just played him like the demo that Bob had recorded for murder most foul. So maybe when the, uh, 
20th anniversary <laughs> rough and rowdy ways <laughs> bootleg series oh god out. oh i hope it's before <laughs> that jeez any of any of us are still around to hear it um but yeah i mean it's just sort of this amazing again it wouldn't be one session it'd be multiple sessions because like he's bob's listening you know bob's listening to it and he's saying we need another piano we need you know three pianos seems excessive but he's <laughs> hearing this you know this sort of very intricate music and sort of really building it i mean you know it's almost like a sergeant peppers thing which is not bob's usual mo no it's antithetical to how he normally would do it and so hearing you know again multiple people i've talked to talking about the sort of care he's doing in layering this stuff and the nuance i just think would be would be sort of fascinating fascinating to watch and again fairly different than everyone else i've talked to it was like yeah you know we went and recorded street legal and it sounded like crap in the room and no one wore headphones <laughs> we did one take of every song he was like yeah good enough we'll do another one you know uh <laughs> it's so different than what you normally think of all right that's absolutely a marvelous answer absolutely so well again ray thank you for doing this i really appreciate it i wanted to have you on the show for a long time so i'm glad we finally got a chance to do this why don't you tell people where they can find you out on the internet uh, so yeah, so flagging down the double E's is the name of the Dylan newsletter. Um, a lot of interviews, a lot of other stuff too, uh, to quote someone <laughs> or other. It's a, this URL is dylanlive.substack.com. Um, I also do a Tom Waits newsletter about every, it's called every Tom Waits song. If there's any, back alley Sally actually kind of sounds like she could be a Tom Waits character. So Absolutely. Yeah. If there's any Tom Waits fans out there. I got that going too. <laughs> I love Tom Waits. I love Tom Waits. So I'll have to check that out as well. So uh, again, uh, thank you for, for coming on, Ray. I really appreciate it. Uh, and of course, everybody, if you want to find backups of the show, go to our website, findwaterpodcast.com. You can subscribe to the show on any podcatcher of your choice. Uh, and finally, if you want to support the Fine Water Podcast Network, just go to patreon.com slash podcast. So big thanks to Robert Ward, Steve Cronin, Max Hutzel, George Doherty, Joaquin Meckel, Paul Ruther, and Henry Bernstein for their support of Pod Dylan. I really appreciate it. So that's going to do it. Thanks, everybody, for listening, and we will see you later. Bye. I remember it was summer, and it was 100 degrees in the shade when I got to the session, and I was introduced to Bob, and Bob was wearing this, you know, one of those old surfer sweaters with the two strings and the hoodie and, like, the, the stitched stripes down the sides, black leather gloves, and he had a hat on with the hoodie over that and shades. And I was like, that's cool. <laughs>